Max Quick, Book Two, The Two Travelers, by Mark Jeffrey, read by the author. The sequel to Max Quick, Book One, The Pocket and the Pendant, produced by Mark Jeffrey in association with Podiobooks.com. For more information on the Max Quick series or this podcast, please visit www.maxquickseries.com. The Max Quick series is now available as ebooks in the iPhone App Store. Twenty three Madworth and the Machine. At the end of Bleecker Street, Max, Ian, Sambaba, Gustav, and Feliero stood outside the locked iron gates of Madworth's nursery. An icy wind soughed in the air, scattering crisp brown and red leaves everywhere, filling their ears with crackling, scraping sounds. The first rays of morning, a light blue glow, was just now inching over the horizon. Chains wrapped like snakes around the front gate, wound tightly about the bars before terminating in a giant lock. There was a great yard beyond this, something which should have been a playground, filled with the laughter of children playing in the sun. The surface of the yard was covered with crooked red bricks, bulging and waving from frost heaves and the growing of tree roots. It was clear from the ragged way several swings hung from the sparse trees that they hadn't even been used for decades. "'Open up, Madworth!' Max yelled. His voice boomed and echoed across the yard. Ian almost covered his ears. The sound of it was so unnaturally loud. Max sounded like Jadith had when she'd used her whispering stone to address the world. Only Max no longer needed an Umphalos. He was doing this on his own. He was a living Umphalos, and his very throat was now magic. I'm here for you, Madworth. Open up. I've got a whole bag of bad with your name on it. Come on out, or I'm coming in there to get you. Ian snorted. I don't think she's going to come out and say hello, mate. But Max simply continued to goad her. Madworth! Madworthless! Listen up. I'm going to break your little science project today. The machine. I'm going to snap it in half. When there was no reply, Max continued. But I'll tell you what. I'll cut you a deal. If you come out, if you let the children go, then I'll let the rest of your little Nibirian friends go. Feliero hissed in protest, but Max ignored him. That's the deal. But not you, Madworth. I'm holding you responsible for what's happened here. To these children, and for what you did to Romani. So come on out and get it over with, you hag. But just then, to all of their surprise, the door into the nursery at the far end of the yard did open. It yawned into blackness beyond. A two-story tall chasm, a mouth made of brick. Ian caught his breath. A thin figure emerged. A young, wiry man with a long, thin chin. He blinked at Max with half a smile and stared with watery eyes. Oh no, Max called out, shaking his head in annoyance. I'm not interested in some scrub. You, whoever you are, go back inside and tell Madworth I'm here to play varsity ball today. Master Quick, the man said icily. Mrs. Madworth is quite busy. I advise you to depart. You will find only your death here. Max flexed his fist. Really? And you are? The man was startled by the request. He raised his eyebrows. I am Mr. Quiver. Not that that matters. Quiver, Max said. Listen to me, Quiver. You go back inside and tell Madworth and the rest that I'm coming for them. And for the children you've stolen. And for the machine. 
One way or another, this all ends today. But Quiver only laughed. I think you underestimate yourself and underestimate the machine. You believe that you will break it, but it will break you, Master Quick. Max felt a strange premonition as Quiver said this, but shook it off. I advise you to depart, Quiver concluded, clucking his tongue. With that, Quiver turned back into the doorway. But something happened. Quiver's head snapped back as though someone had punched him. He landed unconscious in the dead leaves of the playground. Sambaba stepped out from inside the nursery. Thank you, Max. You did a fine job of distracting Mr. Quiver here. Uh, thank you, Max said, but Sambaba had already vanished. Max turned to look behind him. Sambaba had been standing there the entire time as well. He'd performed Gustav's trick of non-locality. I, I mean, thank you. Both of you. Well, I mean, they're both you. Ah, you know what I mean. Sambaba bowed his head, smiling serenely. He stepped forward and easily broke the lock on the gate and opened it. All of them stepped inside. The interior of the nursery was completely empty, but Max knew better. He sprinted from room to room impatiently, trying this door and then that. What are you looking for? Feliero asked him. They're doing it to us, Max replied. The trick Romani used on the door of the house, you know, of making it not noticeable. They're doing that to us right now. While Feliero continued to watch in confusion, Max whipped his head this way and that, trying to see out of the corner of his eye rather than straight on. Reality was thought, and material things could therefore retain imprints, suggestions, that affected consciousness and perception. That was how Namshubs worked. That was how Romani had made the doors of her house invisible. There was a strong imprint in the walls of this room that said, There was nothing here. That there was nothing to see. That it was empty. But Max knew better. Stubbornly, he refused to believe that. Then he caught it. A platform out of the corner of his eye. Just a faint suggestion, a ghostly image in his peripheral vision. But when he turned and looked directly at it, it disappeared, as if it had been merely a trick of the light. Aha! Max shouted. Aha what? Ian asked. Mirror transporter, right here. Max squinted at what appeared to be bare floor. Where? Ian protested, as if he were mad. Here, Max insisted, stepping up onto what seemed to be nothing. And at that moment, the illusion was broken, and a stone platform appeared without transition. Two giant mirrors were on either side of it, just like the mirror transporter inside the sky chamber had been during the pocket. Ian suddenly realized that he had actually been seeing it the whole time, but hadn't realized it. Bloody hell, he breathed. So that's how they've been hiding the nest. Double whammy, Max agreed. Transporters, cloaked with a Namshub. Dr. Gustav, you've never seen a transporter before, so you didn't know what to look for. That's how the Nuberians were always able to give you the slip. Gustav nodded, seeing the platform now. Ah, so what do we do now? Get up here, everyone. We're going to go to wherever it is that Madworth goes, Max said. The mirror transporter translated them into a new location, with a dizzying, disoriented, tugging feeling. Ian and Max experienced a similar roller coaster stomach drop feeling, which was just like the one their innards had registered the first time around in Siren's sky chamber. When they arrived on the other side, Max saw that they were standing in a quaint little village, improbably located inside of an immense underground cavern. Squat brick buildings with hanging lanterns were arranged neatly in rows, a seemingly normal everyday town with a butcher, baker, and candlestick maker. 
defying an onlooker to notice the screaming incongruence of its bizarre location deep beneath the Earth's surface. The Barians, Ian whispered, clucking his tongue. They love their secret subterranean little hideouts, don't they? Quiet, Max hissed. They're in the town square on a platform near a clock with Roman numerals, just as Vadim had described. The time registered just after six o'clock in the morning. Somewhere high in the cavern was a faint creaking noise. A far-off door opened in the ceiling, and a sky chamber descended lazily through it. It apparently entered through one of the passageways secreted into the buildings of 1912 New York. So this is where they keep them, Ian thought. There seemed to be very few people about. A lone coachman unloaded a delivery of crates to a shop a few blocks away. A large man walked with three children, pushing them along towards some task, probably to slave beside some great oven cooking breakfast. Elsewhere, two men strolled down the street, dressed in cloaks and top hats. They didn't even turn around at the bright flash of the transporter. It seemed people here were quite used to folks arriving and departing via the platform. There was nothing unusual about it. As a result, nobody paid their arrival much attention. Weird, Ian whispered. I mean, that it's all so normal-looking. This way, Gustav said, quickly discerning their situation and taking the lead. Nobody run. Just walk. Act like we belong here. The party followed Gustav at a stiff pace into a nearby alley. That was when Max got his first glimpse of the machine. It loomed over everything, monstrous in size, like a mountain in the distance. Ian and Max gaped at it, and Feliero turned to see what they were looking at it and almost cried out in sheer astonishment. Sambava met the sight wordlessly, but his throat tightened visibly, and Max's heart fell. Dismay filled him. How was he supposed to destroy that? A giant crater had been hollowed out of the earth just beyond the town, and it was in this crater that the machine itself lay. At rest, it looked like a great circular plane, a wafer of white gold standing upright. But as Max looked closer, he saw that this plane was actually constructed of multiple concentric hoops, one nested inside of the other, just as Vadim had drawn. These hoops were great rings, with dimensions that normally only applied to features on a geographical scale. Max also saw that Omphalos gems were laid into each band at precise intervals like rivets. Then the party was in the alley, and the machine slipped out of view like a curtain had neatly closed. That thing is freaking huge, Ian panted. Tell me about it, Max replied, shaken. Max found he was also profoundly disturbed in another way that he hadn't realized until just now. He had unconsciously assumed that when he actually saw the machine for the first time, he would suddenly understand what it was for, that it would somehow be obvious, implied. But now, having glimpsed it, he discovered that he was still entirely baffled. The purpose of the device was no clearer. It remained the terrible enigma it had always been. Gustav grabbed Max and shook him. Stop. Right now. Remember what I taught you. Do not fear. It will rob you of your power. Fear feeds fear, and then you are lost. Max nodded briskly. What the now? Feliero asked. Sambava stood at the corner, eyeing the town square. He'd apparently appointed himself watchman while they debated. The kids, Max said. We get them first. No, Gustav replied emphatically. The machine. There is more at stake here than just the children. If we destroy it, we can free them after. Max sagged. He didn't want this crisis to be so near. But after a moment, he nodded in agreement. It was time. 
He rolled his neck like an athlete, preparing to jump into the game, psyching himself up. He punched his open palm with a fist. Right. Let's do it. Gustav led them down the alley and around the corner. He evidently wanted to try and sneak towards the machine unseen for as long as possible. He chose a route that kept them all in the shadows, but which zigged and zagged closer to the looming device in the distance with each step. But in the end, the town was not really all that large. It was just a small hamlet nestled onto a lump rock platform. There was a good-sized plane of rock face between the edge of town and the crater of the machine that they would have to cross, unshielded by buildings or any other covering. There was no way around it. They would have to step out into the open. Suddenly, Ian understood why there were no guards. First, the machine was so huge that nobody could really do anything to it. But second, anyone strolling across the plane would be instantly spotted. That was when the party was abruptly interrupted by a small legion of Nuberian centurions. Well, so much for the no gods theory, Ian thought. After all, Vadim had warned them there were Nuberian centurions. There were twenty or so of them, dressed head to toe in their distinctive ultra-shiny golden armor. Ian started with memory. They looked exactly as he remembered from five long years ago. They were in formation, turning a corner ahead when they came directly at the party in a sort of military jog. Max stepped out to meet them. Feliero hissed a warning, but Gustav held him back. He had faith in his student. Ian's ring finger itched, but he fought the impulse of the dark green gem and blood metal down. The soldiers stopped. Back off, Max warned evenly. The leader laughed. Mrs. Madworth has been expecting you. Yeah, about her, Max growled. He flexed his muscles and relaxed his mind, calling his star power up. He looked at his arms, waiting for the telltale shooting stars to appear. I've learned a lot recently. You should know that I'm a lot more powerful now, and I'm about to teach Mrs. Madworth a thing or two. Go tell her that... <clears throat> Max crumpled to the ground. The centurions laughed. Another centurion had simply whooshed up behind Max while he was talking and knocked him unconscious. He looked down at Max's body. <laughs> However fancy you are, you can't do nothing when you're knocked out, he said. The other centurions howled in amusement. Ian's blood went cold. Max was down. This wasn't supposed to happen. Now what? Even Gustav, Feliero, and Sambava looked stunned for a moment. Max lay in a broken heap, with blood trickling from the back of his head. But then Feliero seemed to get a grip and stepped forward. His lip curled into a sneer as he approached the centurion who had downed Max. Tell me, Feliero asked him without preamble. Have you ever been to the sea, my golden friend? The centurion stared at the magician and stopped laughing. He shook his head, perplexed by the sudden question. Well, then I will bring the sea to you. And with that, Feliero removed his top hat. It tumbled down his arm hypnotically. Then he gripped it with both hands, with the opening facing out, and braced himself. Suddenly, a great gout of water shot out of the hat, ejected with tremendous force, something like a fire hose, but much, much stronger. This was like the eruption of a volcano. Ian thought for a moment that the hat would surely gnash itself apart at the seams. It was though the trick top hat had suddenly become a gateway to the very bottom of the ocean. Which, in fact, it had. The centurion was blown back by the sheer force of the gallons upon gallons of seawater. It carried him so far away, so fast, that the party could no longer even see him in the distance. A few stray fish fell from the water and flopped around pointlessly on the ground. 
Faliero next pointed his hat at the remaining centurions nearby, and they were likewise blasted from where they stood. They cursed in frustration, but there was simply no opposing a horizontal column of seawater such as this. Ian nodded in appreciation. Then Faliero barked something, and the water chute sagged. He struggled for a moment to close the ocean portal, and then finally he was holding just an ordinary top hat again. Sambaba jumped forward and picked Max's limp form up like a sack of potatoes. Gustav rushed towards him as well. How is he? Ian asked. Sambava felt Max's pulse and then shook his head. He's bad, the giant Asian said. He has a concussion. He's deep in a coma. He won't recover today. Ian and Gustav both jerked their gazes at Sambava. Won't recover? What the hell were they going to do now? The machine loomed in the distance, seeming to mock them all. But if Max can't, if we don't have his, I don't know, whatever power, Ian stuttered, feeling panic stab his innards. Max is the only one of us who might have been able to take down the machine, Gustav replied calmly. If he is incapacitated, then we have no more further purpose here. We must withdraw. Withdraw? Ian shook his head. No bloody way, Gustav. We have no choice, Gustav answered. But we can't wait, Ian replied. Look! Ian stabbed a finger at the colossal device looming above them. The stupid thing's finished. We're here. It's now and never. Nevertheless, Gustav hissed, this entire attempt is pointless without Max. Feliero suddenly shushed them both and pointed. A lone centurion faced away from the party a mere block from where they now stood. When this new guard had arrived, or how he had completely missed the commotion accompanying Faliero's watery dispatch of the earlier brigade, none of them had any idea. But it was clear that he was keeping watch in the other direction, and any more noise on their part would certainly alert him. Faliero stealthily crept up behind this guard. Then he removed his top hat and carefully placed it on the centurion's head and stepped away. The guard felt the hat and jumped slightly in surprise, raising his hand to his head in amused bafflement. He turned around slowly, not alarmed, assuming this was a prank or something put over on him by one of the other centurions. He certainly was not expecting an intruder. The smile ran from his lips as he spotted Faliero, standing calmly before him. Faliero, you idiot, run, Ian thought frantically. But the magician just stood there, calmly, smiling that maddening smile of his. The centurion grew several shades angrier as he stood there, first trying to process that there was an intruder when it actually snuck up behind him and put a hat on his head, and then how best and painfully to dispatch this grinning intruder for his insolence. Faliero saw all of this play across his face, but still smiled. The centurion opened his mouth to say something, but at precisely that moment the hat dropped down over his face. It was as though his head had suddenly shrunk, where the hat had expanded to several sizes too large for him. Ian heard the sound of someone shouting, muffled by felt. The centurion tried to lift the hat off his face, but it seemed to be stuck. Quickly realizing this, he struggled more profusely, desperate to wrestle the hat from his head. But oddly, it just slipped down over his shoulders. It forced his upper arms into a locked position. His arms were only useful from the elbows down. Writhing in panic now, they clutched at the hat, but with the upper arms locked, there was nothing they could do. The hat slipped down another notch with a sudden wrench. It was like the hat was swallowing him. It was a stylish, black felt bow constrictor swallowing a victim. 
Now, there was just a top hat, with two legs sticking out of it. The hat suddenly fell over, and the legs kicked frantically. Feliero calmly approached the hat and helped push it the rest of the way over the centurion. And within a moment, the centurion was somewhere inside the oblivion of the hat. Feliero replaced it calmly to his own head. Well, that takes care of that problem, Feliero said. Where is he? The centurion? He's quite all right. Don't fret. He's just gone to a holding place in the hat. We can bring him out later, if we want to, that is. Well done, Gaspar, Gustav said with admiration in his eyes. Well done, indeed. Faliero nodded. Thanks to your teaching, Dr. Gustav. Yours and Europa's. We should get back to that place we arrived, Zimbabwe said urgently, before more spot us. Yes, Gustav replied. We should, but it was already too late. Now, three legions approached their position, swimming into view at once from three different directions. They were trapped. Gustav sagged visibly. Well, Ian, you've gotten your wish after all. It seems we will not be leaving this place today. Zimbabwe watched with a strange look on his face. Ian saw something play across his features like twisted agony. He had never seen the gentle giant look this way before. But then it broke as quickly as it had come. Zimbabwe released it, whatever it was, and threw his head back and laughed uproariously with clean joy. So it has come to this at last. The meaning of our lives is upon us in this place. The test has arrived. We must do our best. For the children snared here. For the world, so that this machine is never loosed upon it. And for Europa. Yes, for Europa. Let us make her proud of us this day. Thaliero and Gustav both watched him with misted eyes, shaking with passion at his words. The rustling of approaching centurion armor filled their ears. Gustav suddenly couldn't stand it any longer. He charged first, screaming, towards the company of centurions that seemed nearest. He howled and suddenly changed into a mammoth black panther, a beast roaring like thunder. He crashed into the first wave of them, felling five with one blow, a flurry of long white fangs flashing amidst the tearing golden armor and flesh. Next, Faliero reached into his cloak and brought out several of the linked silver hoops he had tossed at Max and Ian during their melee on the hull of the sky chamber. Calmly, he walked towards his opponents, stroking his pointed black beard, His attack would be more civilized, refined, gentlemanly even, than Dr. Gustav's, but even more deadly in its own way. The magician tossed the hoops into the air at his opponents. They raised their arms to defend themselves from the strange attack with a lazy sort of manner, clearly not understanding that the hoops were deadly business. The silver band separated in mid-flight, whistling as they traveled until they reached the first line of centurions. Arms disappeared with frightening speed. Torsos were engulfed. Confusion ensued as the remaining centurions struggled to bat the rings away and were partially consumed by the yawning void inside their circumference. When it was finished, half of their number fell to the ground, missing limbs, heads, and legs. And then Ian felt the green ring on his finger prick him deeper, as though responding to his need. Oh no, he thought. What the bleeding hell is it doing now? Another great silver tentacle sprouted from the ring and sunk itself deep into the vein at his wrist. Ian cried out in pain. His own blood flowed up it, feeding the ring directly, coursing along this new metal artery. And then the ring suddenly grew at an alarming rate. Black and silver metal sprouted around his entire hand, 
sheathing it in a gauntlet. It pierced his flesh again in several places, fusing to him even more deeply. It was ripping his flesh to shreds. The iron glove was stylized with many points and sharp edges. Nanotechnology, Ian thought stupidly. It's converting my flesh into metal somehow, my blood at a molecular level. But the ring didn't stop there. The glove grew up his arm, and the same kind of sharp, blackish metal armor folded and locked over yet more metal armor. It tore the sleeve of his shirt off as it roared up his shoulder, then he felt it sink yet another metal vein under his armpit. The armor then spread across his chest and back, and then down his other arm, encasing him completely to the tips of his remaining hand. He watched helplessly as it then shot down his torso, ripping his clothes as it sheathed his legs, his shins, and, and finally splitting his shoes off as it covered his feet. He then felt it spread up the back of his neck, tickling him. Metal was now encasing his head, snapping snug around his ears. Not my face, Ian thought desperately. Not my face also. But mercifully, the metal stopped at the very edges of his cheeks. Three blade fingers swept out in front like a face mask, but did not clamp down. He stood there, invulnerable, in stark terror. And then the final bit of strangeness. The metal no longer felt like a foreign object, encasing him. In an instant, it became his skin. His own blood pounded through the metal, flowed in its iron capillaries. His nerve endings now mapped the outer surface of the metal as surely as if it were his own flesh. He felt powerful. Maybe this blood metal wasn't so bad after all. He clenched his fists. Two razor-sharp spikes obediently jutted out of each forearm as if he had squeezed them out of his own skeleton. He looked up. His vision seemed sharper, clearer. He felt healthier, full of energy. Faliero and Gustav fought their legions madly. Sambaba was bent over Max, cupping his head. Dimly, Ian wondered why the broad Asian had yet to attack. But Ian knew he could help. He was sure of it. He could do something, finally! Laughing, he charged at the third brigade approaching them. But these centurions were clearly terrified of him. Of course, Ian thought. They recognized the blood metal armor. They know what it is. And they were petrified. Ian laughed even more. Good! But they were also not making the error of underestimating this attack, as Feliero's and Gustav's legions had done. They had drawn their weapons. It suddenly occurred to Ian that he'd never seen the centurion's mode of battle before, other than the use of ceremonial weapons such as bows and daggers, which they had used to kill Siren in the end. No, they had never actually fought centurions during the pocket. This would be something completely new. His sharpened eyesight spotted their weapons, black gems laid into a golden handpiece. Umphalos, Ian thought. Some kind of Umphalos weapon? But, but what? Guns? Lasers? He had his answer quickly enough. A tightly packed ball of fire smacked into his midsection before he realized it had been shot. It was white hot with orange flames dancing around it. It was like a gout of lava. Ian jumped for a moment in fear and placed his hand instinctively on his ribcage. But he didn't feel anything. The fire sloughed off him and dropped to the ground. The armor was protecting him. More gouts of this fire slammed into him, but now he was unafraid. They couldn't hurt him. And they seemed to know it. They backed away slightly as he approached. They were afraid of him. Good, Ian howled in his mind. Good! He swung his arms savagely as he hit the front line. The black spike blade shooting out of his arms easily penetrated the golden armor. 
wreathing him with screams and cries. He had thought he would be shocked. After all, this was the first time Ian had actually hurt anyone like this, or killed them. But it had the opposite effect. Ian was feeding off it. The experience was exhilarating. He could feel the organ of blood metal now encasing him, gorging itself on the blood of his enemies. With each hack, with each slash, it drank. My god, the armor is actually drinking. He wondered whether he was imagining it, but he felt it. He couldn't deny it, nor explain exactly how he knew this. But each drop filled him with renewed energy. It was intoxicating. The metal capillaries in the very blades themselves sucked every drop out of every pound of flesh it sliced. The wounded centurions were not even bloody. Their wounds were gaping open like mouths, but dry as bone. The back ranks were fleeing now. Ian in this armor was not something one could fight against and win. The remaining able-bodied centurions ran as fast as they could in the opposite direction. Oh no, Ian thought. You're not getting away that easily. With a thought, something like a barbed wire, spangled with razor-sharp black triangles, sprouted from one arm and shot towards one of the stragglers. It wrapped itself around his neck and yanked taut, pulling him back abruptly. Ian felt the wire line sink a metal vein into the centurion's jugular. He surged with a new rush of energy, his blood flowed back through the mysterious iron capillaries in the line. Ian! A voice shouted near him. He whirled and two more spikes jutted out from his other arm. He almost couldn't stop himself. Ian almost gutted Dr. Gustav on the spot. With tremendous effort, Ian pulled himself back from the brink. The armor yowled as if with pain, but he forced himself to stand down to leave Gustav untouched. It pained him greatly. He was horrified. It was all he could do to keep the armor contained. He wanted to attack. So badly he was shaking. But Gustav seemed to know this. Calmly, defiantly, he stood there, and Ian seemed to draw this energy of calmness from the doctor in degrees. A few moments later, all the spikes in the armor had retracted, and Ian's heart settled back into a normal rhythm. It is the blood metal, Gustav said softly. It lusts for blood. This is the terrible price I spoke of. The battle is over. Now, you must do the opposite of what you did in battle. You must resist what the blood metal wants you to do. You must show the suit who is master. Ian nodded, panting. But the armor did not let him go. It still encased him. But, by degrees, he felt it grow calmer, subside, grow dormant. At least for now. Thaliero approached a moment later, smiling. We have a won the day, it seems. The Centurions have all fled. Gustav nodded. Then Thaliero shifted his gaze to Ian, and his eyes registered shock for a second, noticing the armor for the first time. Ian looked away, ashamed. But as he did so, he noticed Sambava sprawled on the ground next to Max. Sambava! he howled. Thaliero and Gustav spun, looking to where his line of vision was. The trio sprinted to the large Asian. When they arrived, Gustav dropped and felt for a pulse. Ian gritted his teeth for a second as a thought came unbidden into his mind. Finish him off. Sink a delicious blade into that flesh. Give us more to drink. Disgusted with himself for even considering it, Ian looked away. He's dead, Gustav said suddenly. Dead? Ian forced himself to look back. Feliero checked Simbava over feverishly. 
But he's not even wounded. He's not hurt. He should not be dead, Valero hissed. Max suddenly stirred on the ground, groaning. His eyes fluttered and he sat up. Gustav and Feliero locked gazes. Gustav, Max said weakly. What? Uh, where are we? Sambava, you fool, Feliero suddenly yelled at the Asian, cradling his slack face. You big stupid fool! Gustav hung his head. What? Ian asked. Sambava, Gustav said, quietly shaking his head. He healed Max. At, at cost to himself. That seemed to snap Max into the present. What? Max said. His gaze sprang out, and then he leapt up to his feet and looked down at Sambava. Faliero cradled his head, full of rage and sadness at once. No, Max said, shaking his head. He, he didn't. Not him, too. Max, Gustav said. Do not blame yourself. He made his own choice, freely. No, 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 no! Not somebody else dead? Because of him? Not somebody else like Europa? Something happens to them, he heard his own voice tell Ian. Something happens to the Order of the Hidden Hand. They don't survive. They don't survive because one by one they die. Because of him. Because of Max Quick. There's no time to blame yourself, Gustav snapped at Max. You have work to do. The machine... To make his sacrifice worth something. Make Europa's mean something. Max nodded. He would. Come on, Ian said. Let's hurry up. Max looked at him and started, seeing the armor. What? It's a ring, Ian answered sheepishly. The blood metal ring. He grew into this during the battle. Max nodded numbly. Feliero jumped to his feet and turned, his stride snapping towards the machine manically. Gustav nodded grimly and looked at Ian and Max, and then turned to go himself. Max and Ian fell in behind. Within minutes, they found themselves in front of the great plane. While they contemplated their next move, a great creaking noise suddenly thundered through the air. It sounded like metal bending. Max gasped as the machine sprang to life. First, the inner bands came free and began rotating, spinning very fast like small flywheels. Then, each band successively in turn, outward, joined the inner bands, outer hoops rotating and whirring around the inner spinning hoops, each hoop on a different axis. Each golden circle was apparently capable of floating on a different pivot. Max saw now that the rings were not only rotating around an axis, but they were also rotating circularly as well. Finally, the larger outer bands started to come free. These were slower to begin because of their great size. Each was like a great ponderous ferris wheel stirring to life. But the sweep of the outermost bands was the most frightening of all. A colossus of metal, seeming the size of a continent, approached from the air above slowly, and then suddenly appeared to be right on top of Max, about to fall on him like the side of a mountain. And then it passed, with a mighty whoosh of air that nearly knocked him backwards off his feet. And half a second later, this reversed, and he was pulled forward, sucked in by the vacuum left in the mighty band's wake. Yet, there was a wonder to the machine. Although Max knew it was constructed for some horrid purpose, there was something of Jules Verne in it, or H.G. Wells. The spinning gold and jewels reminded him of the time machine from the old movies. This device was Niberian, to be sure, but it was also Victorian and something distinctly at home in 1912. 
Now that the rings were all spinning at what seemed to be their operational speeds, the machine itself appeared to be a monstrous, blurry sphere, almost like a small moon hovering in the cavern. The innards were a great blur of golden jewels, motion and energy, focusing a great distortion of crackling energy at the core. Then, all of the Omphalos jewels set into the bands lit up at once. Trails of light suddenly appeared within the blurry sphere, chaotic at first, but quickly resolving into order. Then, Omphalos gems were pulsed, such that a perfect dodecahedron of pure light was now outlined in the core of the sphere. Blurred at first, and then sharpening, such that its edges were crisp as razors. The same sickening feeling gripped all of them, even Ian this time. Oh, this was it all right, but a thousand times worse. The proximity of the machine. Max gritted and gnashed his teeth in agony. They all did. Ian's face turned beet red, and his mouth turned into an O, finally comprehending some small portion of what it was they had all felt before. And then... A small black waddling figure approached out of the cavern mists, walking deftly across the plain from the direction of the machine, cackling. She was headed right towards them, making a beeline right for the party. She knew they were there. Madworth. Max Quick, she howled. Ah, Max Quick, so you have come at last. Max fought down his pain and stood up straight. His stomach gurgled and spikes lanced through his innards, but he would not be crouching down in front of Madworth. No, he also felt more angry than afraid now. Good, he thought to himself. Good. He was eager to make up for his failure to help Romani. Yes, this time it would be different. He wouldn't hide his power. Not like he always had. No. This time he wouldn't keep it from himself. Bury it. Be afraid of it. No. This time he would use it. This time, he would embrace his potential. Oh, Madworth was going to find out. She had a big, big surprise coming. The crone was only fifty feet or so away now. Max stepped out to meet her. Feliero hissed a warning, but Gustav gripped his shoulder. It was Max or nobody. We have been looking for you, Master Quick, you know, Madworth said. So I heard, Max dredged his voice to life. You had Pinkertons trying to kill me. To kill? Madworth laughed and made a mockery of looking shocked. <laughs> Surely you exaggerate. Oh, no, 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 no. We wanted to invite you here personally to see what we have built. She gestured towards the machine in the distance. Well, I'm here now, Max growled. I'm here to kill you, and I'm here to tear apart the machine. Madworth laughed as though surprised, as if this were simply ludicrous. <laughs> Europa told me all about you before I broke her, you know, Madworth said coyly. Oh, yes. She quivered and yelped as she babbled before she gurgled her last breath while you ran away like a coward. That stung him, and you're going to pay for her death as well. Madworth chortled like a ghoul. Temperance, Max, in all things, temperance. At that moment, a coal-black crow swooped in and landed on Madworth's shoulder. Max bristled. He knew it was not really a crow. It was an archon. But Max ignored its presence deliberately. What are you doing to those kids, Madworth? Why are you kidnapping them? What is this place? Max raged, feeling a mixture of horror and anger rising inside of him. Should we tell him? Madworth asked the crow. 
It caught in response like laughter. Very well, then. Why, it's a nursery, Master Quick. We were raising small children. Didn't you know that? We teach them temperance. And then, a new voice said. Max strained to figure out where the voice was coming from, and then suddenly realized it had been the crow that had spoken. Well, then, I must confess, we are eating them. Max saw the plane go wide and zoom out at the same moment, creating a sensation of vertigo. Eating them? Oh, not their flesh, the crow continued. Nothing so baroque as roasting baby flesh over a fire. Our taste is one more subtle, more refined, though perhaps even more horrible in its way. We induce them to greater and greater heights of fear, and then we devour that fear. There is our bread. There is our wine. How their delicious fear nourishes us. It is a delightful nectar, quite unlike the fear of grown-ups. No, this is fresh fear, from the depths of the soul. It is new fear, pure, not polluted with something so sour as hope. Newborn fear. Oh, how they gush it. Like potent little ripe grapes, we suckle from them. Little jolts of fear, of terror. Why, when they cry, it just howls out of them. Can you feel it, Master Quick? When you are afraid, it feels like something is rushing out of you, out of your soul. Like you've opened the door to a cold winter night. Like a vacuum is forming in your heart. Because it is, Max Quick, it is. Fear is the sensation of energy being sucked from your soul. Your essence rushes out of you, and we inhale it, rare narcotic that it is. But the fear of children has such a sweet and powerful taste to it, because it is so pure, so vibrant, so alive. We prize the fear of children above all delicacies. You're an archon, Max hissed in disgust. How nice that you understand, the crow trumpeted. Dear me, I'd hope you did not think I was merely a talking crow. We're allies, Madworth added. Their strength is our strength. From them we learn to build the machine. But what does the machine do? Max held his breath, allowing his eyes to drift up to the massive spinning blurred globe towering behind everything. Would she actually tell him? In the state of rapture she was in, she just might. She cackled with delight. <laughs> the machine amplifies fear, stores it, directs it, channels it, multiplies it. The strength of archons comes from fear. They are nourished through it. We are generating fear, distilling it, purifying it. The machine aims this concentrated fear out, upwards, outwards, spilling into the whole world. Surely you have felt it. Surely you feel it now. The pure fear of children radiates, a great surging mass of it, howling into the very souls of the men who shape history. For this is, how did Europa put it? The keystone time and the keystone place. The pivot of history, the anvil of time. Max stood for a moment in stunned amazement at this revelation. So that was it. The machine was a dreamtime device, just as Ian had suspected. A soul gizmo, designed to poison the dream of the universe, to pollute it with fear. And to do that, they used children as raw material. 
They terrorized poor little souls on a level that was unimaginable, but Madworth wasn't finished gloating. She continued, This fear soaks into the hearts of those above. Oh, most don't know it. They don't feel it directly as you do. But it grows in them, a seed, then a sapling, and then a mighty oak of fear. And thanks to the machine, this world will be changed, altered forever. Wars the likes of which the black-headed ones have never dreamt possible will erupt. The machine will no longer even be necessary. Fear, hate, suffering will increase and become a self-sustaining engine, a dynamo. Then the Archons will feed on this world as never before. Max sucked in his breath. World War I was a mere two years away. World War II just decades after that. Could they both have somehow been rooted in the machine? And what was happening now? But why? Max asked Madworth pointedly. What do you gain? You're not an Archon. Why do you care? Madworth's entire form quaked. Power! Revenge! Revenge on the wretched Enlil for marooning us here. The Archons are our allies. We make them strong by feeding them the fear of this world. And they, in turn, will help us tear him limb from limb. They have promised! Max snarled. He'd heard enough. The crow flew from her shoulder towards the machine, spinning and seeming to dance in the air, delighting in the waves of fear and hate pounding out from it like a dark heart. The exchange of words was over. Max and Madworth eyed each other across the plain for a long moment, and then Madworth howled and whooshed towards him. Max whooshed at her as well, the white fire of starlight now starting to pour from his skin. They collided with a stunning concussion that rocked the air. Ian was blown back onto the ground, his heart racing. Thaliero's hat rolled past him, blown from the magician's head. Gustav flew back and landed with a dull thud that knocked the wind from him. Max and Madworth pounded each other across the plain, two dervishes splashing chunks of rock and debris in every direction. Their battle was so furious that it was difficult to see exactly what was happening inside the cloud of dust that was raised. But Ian, Gustav, and Thaliero suddenly had their hands full with a new problem. Looking to their right, Gustav beheld Michelle Laveau. She licked her lips when she saw her old friends. Michelle, Gustav said simply, reconsider your treachery. Honor at last the memory of Europa, your mother in every way that mattered, and help us now to defeat Madworth and destroy the machine. It is not too late. Redeem yourself. Michelle seemed to waver for a moment. The mention of Europa affected her visibly, but she hardened her heart and spat. Merd! You were in love with her, you old fool, both of you. Alors, you fawned over her while she caged me and chained me and taught me that to be her daughter was to be a prisoner. And for what? So that I could be like her, alone and barren, bitter? I think not. Michelle, Gustav tried again. You misjudge her. No, Michelle retorted, her French accent growing thicker with her anger. Tears streamed down her cheeks. She was a bitch. Toujours. Yes, there, I said it. Her eyes filled with cold glee. Écoutez, hear me. Europa Romani was a heartless, barren bitch, and I am glad my true mother, Mrs. Madworth, slew that gypsy filth. Both Gustav and Feliero could not hear talk like this of Europa, who had done so much for Michelle, and sit idle. It broke their patience. 
Howling with rage, both of them attacked. Ian joined, running just behind them. Michelle hissed and made claws of her hands. She looked directly at Gustav and made a feral growl and closed one hand into a fist. Gustav dropped to the ground with a hand over his heart as though it had just burst. Michelle laughed her tinkly laugh, now a fell fairy. Her beauty made her seem all the colder, now that her false face had been shorn away. Faliero continued his assault madly, but Ian dropped beside Gustav to check on his condition. The old man wheezed and his eyes were sightless. A medicine man as powerful as Gustav could not have been dropped this easily. Could he? Then Ian recalled that those in the hidden hand had always said that Michelle had been born with more wild talent than any one of them. Ian suddenly guessed she'd hidden even more of her talent than any of them had known. Gustav turned to Ian. For Europa. Then he went slack. Simple as that, Dr. Carlos Gustav was dead. Feliero tumbled as Michelle attempted to burst his internal organs as well, now relying on his ability as an old circus performer rather than his arts to dodge or assault. The air shimmered with a rupture of theurgy just above his head, where his narrow torso had been only moments earlier. Michelle snarled in frustration. Feliero came to a halt at her feet and kicked her legs out from underneath her. She went down, her giant nest of curly blonde hand dancing like snakes as she screamed in surprise. That was not the very nice Mademoiselle Laveau, Feliero said. Michel shrieked again and tried to roll away from him in fresh panic. But the magician writhed his wiry form at her with a surprising speed. Feliero was clever. He realized at once that one-on-one, he was no match for her abilities in bending the dream time. So, instead, he altered the game. He used his physicality. A physical fight was not her thing. He was forcing her to think in terms she was not used to, and was throwing off her concentration in the process. Oddly, Feliero's old skills as a falsifier of magic were the very ones he was using now. He almost smiled wryly at the irony of it. Contorting, bending into strange shapes to fit his body into secret compartments, these old skills were now his allies. His body knew acrobatic arts. His muscles would do things most people would never do during the entire span of their life. He summoned those skills now, dodging Michelle's continued attempts to smash his innards with her mind. And within moments, he was on top of her. Both of them went rigid with sudden pain. Their eyes met. Then both went slack. Faliero! Ian cried. He bolted over to the two of them. It it had happened so fast. Neither was moving. Carefully, Ian rolled Faliero off Michelle. Faliero had stuck her with a blade. A long throwing dagger was buried in her heart. Ian nodded in admiration. Michelle would have never expected such a simple, physical attack. She had always assumed she was safe from such a thing, never anticipating someone like Feliero, who could move so quickly and unpredictably, evading her psychic attacks. It would never have occurred to her to defend herself against such a possibility. But Feliero had paid for it as well. He'd had to get close enough to her to use the blade, and to do that, he'd finally had to stop his twisting acrobatics and remain still long enough to slide it in between her delicate ribs. And this had allowed Michelle to finally rupture his heart. They had died together in an embrace of death. Meanwhile, Max and Madworth continued their ferocious melee on the rock plane. At first it was a wordless battle, a brawl more than anything else. There were whoosh kicks and punches. Madworth swung her heavy umbrella like a bludgeon. Max pounded her back with blows to her ribs. Neither once did he feel strange about assaulting an old woman in this way. 
Madworth was an exceedingly dangerous creature, and she had proven it on many occasions. Madworth snarled and snapped like a vicious dog. She clawed at him, raking lines of blood across his hands, tearing his flesh to ragged chunks. But then the timber of the battle changed. Madworth became a raging cloud of bees, just as she had with Romani at the ball. Now a buzzing gyre, a tornado of sting, a seething tumult of insectoid rage, Madworth blanketed Max in a dark cloud of thrumming, vibrating, and twittering. Max fought down his impulse to panic. After all, this was several hives worth of bees on him, crawling, flying, jittering. It was quite easy to drown in fear in such a situation. But this was exactly how Romani had been killed. He'd seen it. He knew what came next. No, he would fight this. By driving his attention inward, the exterior attack was a distraction. He needed to focus calmly. So Max stood there and allowed the swarm to chew on him. Stings penetrated his skin. Tiny squirts of bee venom flooded his flesh. Meanwhile, he reached deep inside of himself, into the tree part of himself, not the leaf, into the one, into the power of the stars and the sun and the moon. A crisp shoot of argent burst from his forehead. Stars shot and zinged along his skin. Then, at last, he fully caught fire, starfire. He became a shambling creature of densely packed stars and galaxies. He was one with the one. The bees jumped from his skin in panic. Somewhere, he heard Madworth snarl in surprise. But then she used her last gambit. As she had done with Romani, the bees compacted, grew infinitely small, into teeny tiny black holes, subatomic ruptures, a cloud of points, voids, nulls. The little mouths of the universe rained on Max like sand rattling in a storm. And Max allowed them to penetrate him. He did not resist. He welcomed them. He and Madworth fused for a moment. Their essences became intermingled. Because, for that moment, Max was also the entirety of the universe. That and more. Even the universe was nothing. A footnote inside the truth of the One. And these black holes of Madworth's were insignificant, meaningless, laughable, utterly impotent in the face of such towering power. Max absorbed these little mouths of Madworth's, choked them with all the matter they could possibly consume or inhale. He fed colossal, galactic amounts of matter into the tiny mouths, crowding them, bending them, breaking them. It was simply more than they could handle. With a shout, the black holes swirled out of him like panic, coalesced, and became the physical Madworth again. She had been kicked from supernormal reality, reduced to the usual grooves of the dream universe around them both. She had to conform to flesh and bone once again. The old woman lay amidst cinders in the cracked rock plane. Her flesh was swollen and red, with golf ball-sized boils and ridges covering her skin. It was as if large chunks of matter had suddenly materialized inside of her body. She was gorged on them, like a boa constrictor that had tried to swallow an animal too large for it. Madurus' old body would not survive. That was clear. Already, these new tumorous masses that riddled her form were disrupting her circulation, playing havoc with the natural rhythms of her flesh. Max dropped his power and approached her guardedly. Madworth stared at him with amazement and bafflement in her eyes. You... you were to be killed. The Archons, they promised... they promised... You should have picked better friends, Max said. From what I've heard, these Archons don't keep their promises. Not in a way that works out for their supposed allies, anyway. 
Madworth gurgled a bit and then spoke to the air. Why? Why, my allies? Why have you deserted me? I served you. I did what you asked. I built the machine. Her eyes scanned the air, looking for her invisible allies. A curse on you then. A curse. I told you what I was going to do here, Madworth, Max said quietly. I warned you. And now I'm going to finish the rest of it. The machine, Madworth whispered. She smiled and her blackened teeth appeared for a horrible moment. You are the last piece. Then Madworth was still and did not move again. You are the last piece. What the hell did that mean? Marvin Sparkle had also thought Max to be a great danger. That Max would be the one to complete the machine. But what did that all mean? Max wrangled at it. He clenched his fist bitterly with new rage. He was going to destroy it, not complete it. The crow was back. It alighted on Madworth's dead form. Max regarded it for a moment on the balls of his feet, but it didn't seem to be attacking. It was just sitting there, watching him. Then Ian arrived at his side. Valiero and Gustav are dead, Ian panted. They got Michelle, though. And it looks like you got Madworth. Max nodded slowly. Well, Ian continued, you're going to do it in, then. The machine. Max nodded slowly again. Maybe, maybe you shouldn't, Ian said cautiously. Max snapped his gaze at Ian, doubting the sanity of his ears. What on earth are you talking about? 